This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to Elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland, and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land, and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Welcome back to the Climate Action Show. Just before Christmas, I went to New Zealand, so today's show brings you some interviews I did there with climate activists. But since recording these interviews in Aotearoa, New Zealand, with the people who lock on, the people who campaign for effective climate action, the people who are thinking ahead about the shifts we need to make effective action, their Prime Minister has resigned. Now, I hope Jacinda Ardern reappears as an international climate leader after a few years in private life. She stood on the world stage in the era of Scott Morrison, Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro. And she spoke about small nations cooperating to collectively lift their game on climate action. She mandated that certain sectors must disclose climate-related financial risk, and this was a first in the world. Her government banned exploration permits for offshore oil and gas, and they created a national adaptation plan so that communities most affected by climate chaos could be helped even to retreat from sea level rise. I played her speech on air when she received a standing ovation from the whole New Zealand Parliament as they introduced the Zero Emissions Bill because it was so inspiring and so far from what we could aspire to at that time. We're here because our world is warming. Undeniably, it is warming. And I'm proud at least that 10 years on from when I first sat right over there, we're no longer having the debate over whether or not that is the case. Right. We're merely debating what it is we do about it. Climate change is the biggest challenge of our time. And for us here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, that means for this generation, this is our nuclear moment. And so today, if we're to truly reflect that that is what this means for us, we have to start moving beyond targets. We have to start moving beyond aspiration. 
We have to start moving beyond statements of hope and deliver signs of action. And that is what this government is doing, and proudly so. Thank you, National, for supporting this bill. We have to be unified in the fight against climate change. We have to move together. There will be areas where we don't always agree, and in one area it will probably be pace of change. But we will keep pushing, doing everything we can to bring you with us. But, Madam Chair, today we have made a choice that I am proud of that will leave a legacy and that I hope means the next generation will see that we, in New Zealand, were on the right side of history. However, we know that behind such advances is a civil society that's way ahead. They were way ahead banning nuclear-powered warships in their harbour. They were way ahead taking refugees when we're st still just paralysed on that issue. And so I wasn't surprised that the climate campaigners I met were actually impatient with the present government and told me not to be so starry-eyed about Jacinda Ardern. The emissions pricing plan on livestock methane, they said, was watered down in response to the farmers who profit from, profit from exports and are a heavy lobby group. Actual emissions are still rising as coal-fired industry and oil-fueled transport continue. Ardern's Labour government has put in place a framework and a plan to reduce emissions to zero and an independent climate change commission to advise government and monitor progress. And they probably will achieve all of that. But for a small country with 5 million people, that's not where I want to see them cut through. I love seeing them cut through as a world leader and telling Australia to get real about the Pacific, for example, and acting in all those forums they go to to influence the, the progressive idea of real climate action. Meanwhile, my money is on the conscientious campaigners who will keep opening the space for more daring action. And one thing, listeners, that really impressed me in Otipoti Dan Eden was a monument this is why I believe that they really got something there, something precious. This monument was put up by the state to honour a group of people that most states want to airbrush out of history and out of the headlines. It's a monument to the conscientious objectors of World War I who refused to go to war. They were persecuted at the time, but now this monument says, quote, they helped expand the rights and liberties of all New Zealanders. So there's something precious about that going on in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and the people we'll hear from now are expanding the space in which we can all think about repairing the environmental damage and surviving. Today I'm taking you to Ōtepote, Dunedin. It's further south than Hobart, and it's near the south end of Aotearoa, New Zealand. It's a UNESCO city of literature, a university town, and it has a very proud progressive history, I think. Women got the vote there in 1893, and legislation in 2017 endorsed Maori tribal visions for caring for land and water. In 2018, 
Jacinda Ardern and her Labour government banned offshore oil and gas exploration. New Zealand has an ETS and they are planning 1 billion trees planted by 2028. They're also encouraging farmers to reduce livestock methane emissions or face higher taxes from 2025. And you can imagine the furor that that's causing at the moment. For listeners around the world, this is totally admirable. But I'm here to find what the climate avant-garde think and do. We'll hear from Rosemary Henwarden, Jack Brazil, Jana Althea from Extinction Rebellion, and Alva Feldmeyer from 350.org, Aotearoa. Rosemary Penn Warden has been part of the climate movement in Dunedin, Otipote, and for many years, I think, and she's played a big part on stopping oil drilling off the New Zealand coast and stopping coal. Well, I have the impression that there is a certain stagnation and complacency among the energy providers here. So welcome, Rosemary. How did you get involved in climate action? Not the whole story, but just a taste. I could start, I suppose, in 2011 uh, when my first grandchild was born. It was like a great big, very personal kick in the, kick in the pants. I started thinking when he was going to be my age and what was he going to be facing? And really it just probably spurred me into devoting my time to try to make this world livable for him. And you have a scientific background. Does that mean that you read a lot of the science, climate science at that time? Yes, I was trying to understand what Dr James Hansen was talking about <laughs> with forcings and all the rest of it. A lot of it went over my head, but I think having that, I was a medical laboratory scientist for many years, having that uh, way of looking at things from that scientific perspective, I think has been really important for me. Okay. New Zealand's climate policy looks progressive to me. You know, from Australia, it just looks like, oh, kicking goals. But why do the energy providers and carbon-intensive industries here get such a cosy deal from government? That's a great question. Our emissions are still going up. They are still rising, and we are not looking at the biggest problems. Uh, we could start with the fact that there are too many cows, in very inappropriate places, to the point where our people are getting sick because of a few people making big profits on inappropriate farmland. Can you elaborate on that? Because for Australian listeners, New Zealand just looks like a green paradise. It does look like that to me. I can't think of anywhere it'd be inappropriate to graze something. Yeah, well, I've got personal experience. I was a dairy farmer's daughter but I spent, gosh, a few years ago, I spent 12 hours locked inside an irrigation pipe on the Canterbury Plains. And from that vantage point, I could see for myself that what the Canterbury Plains really is, it looks like a beautiful green paradise. There's a small amount of green grass, there's a tiny amount of soil, and then there's stones, deep, deep, deep stones. It's glacial outwash. And what happens then is when the cows pee, it goes down through the stones very quickly to the water tables. And it's causing massive high nitrate damage to our waterways, to our drinking water in Canterbury. And this is for export, isn't it? It's dairy farming 
to export. So that's like Australia with all our extractive industries for export. So this is a sort of extraction too. It's totally extraction. 90 to 95% of all the milk produced in this country is turned into powder, mainly using coal, and exported. In Australia, we talk about asparagopsis supplement, but most of the Australian cattle, I was very criticised on the radio, someone rang me up and said, don't you know most of the Australian cattle are way out on plains? No way you can hand feed them with asparagopsis. But what about here? Well, we use, uh, I think we're one of, I think we may be the biggest user in the world of palm kernel expeller, which comes from uh, mostly Indonesia, and it's imported and it's fed to the cows as they're being milked, and it's uh, totally unsustainable. So could you give them that supplement that would cut down the methane? Well, what, what we've got is the problem of too many cows per hectare. Mm-hmm. It should be around about two, and I don't know what it is actually, to be honest. I'm not an expert on this no. at the moment. But yeah, we've got too many cows. We've got industrial, uh, intensive agriculture in totally inappropriate parts of this country. I wasn't going to ask you that, but as you said, a dairy farmer's daughter, I had to just ask you, because we all talk about asparagopsis, but then everyone says to me, you're naive, you don't know the real thing, and it's not possible in Australia for the cows we have. Look, many people in Australia are sick of talking and sending petitions, and I want to know here, has there been more direct action cutting through to government policy? Yes, a few of us here have have also got sick of talking. I've been going for a decade, more than a decade. I can almost not do it anymore, although I'm still doing signing petitions, even writing petitions. I'm still writing to government. We're still trying to do the right thing, but it's not enough. Our emissions are still going up. So we've started a new campaign called Restore Passenger Rail, and we are using peaceful, nonviolent direct action to force change. Well, explain that. How? What's the direct action? And, and, and rail, I thought you would be lying down in front of the coal trucks. <laughs> We've been doing that. We've done that a few times here in Dunedin, actually. We've got eight people on, ba- on bail at the moment. Um, charges still to come for um, stopping coal trains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we have joined in with 11 other countries. It's part of what they call the A22 network which just means April 2022, and that's when we started. It's basically a bunch of people. A lot of them are young people. I'm a bit of an exception. Uh, I'm 63. And we are causing disruption to business as usual in a nonviolent way in order to bring the point that we're in a climate emergency and we need to act now to the public's attention, mainly to the government's attention. And the overall aim is pretty lofty, but it's to force our respective governments to make the changes they need to make to start bringing emissions down. Passenger rail, now I happen to have been reading a bit of the history of Dunedin, and in 1900, they were very proud to be building locomotives here. And really it was a hive of very progressive inventions, lots of inventions, and I think 
there's potential here. I love rail. <laughs> I see the rail, the tracks are there, but I couldn't get a ticket because there were cruise ships in the port and they'd chartered all the trains or the train to where I was going, which is Omaru. They'd chartered all the tickets. So well, what do you think? What's your big vision? You really want to get railways restored around the island and get people out of their cars? That's what we want to do. Our demand is to bring rail back to year 2000 level. That's 22 years ago. But we are so far behind the rest of the world when it comes to rail. We've allowed our rail system to be degraded to such an extent that it is now in pretty bad shape and there's a lot to do. Um, if you're trying to travel in the south by train, you have to be a piece of coal to get any further south than Christchurch. <laughs> That's yeah. tragic, but the rails are still there, aren't they? They're still there and they're being used quite heavily for carting coal. So if you phased out coal, there'd be lots of room for passengers. But how do you get people out of their cars? I mean, I don't see electric vehicles here very much. I don't see wind farms. I don't see solar panels. It seems like all of that's not really advanced. That's right, and it could be so much better. There's been a push by government to... They've got rebates for electric vehicles, for importing electric vehicles. That's a little tiny start. Dunedin has comparatively quite a few electric vehicles here. But it's way, way too little, way too late. And I think with the whole getting people out of cars onto trains, it's a chicken and egg thing. And I think the government needs to just bite the bullet, spend money, upgrade the tracks, and put some decent rail, passenger rail in place, and people will come. Yeah. Well, all over Europe, people are getting out of aeroplanes and getting into trains, aren't they? And short distances, and New Zealand has short distances. We have short distances. We also have long, a long skinny country, but we don't have an option at the moment. We either have to take a bus. I've been travelling by bus from Wellington. It's, um, it's, it's like travelling to Dunedin to Picton. So from the bottom of the south to the top of the South Island, you could be in a plane and you could get to Hong Kong in that time. But the bus is the only public transport option at the moment. And then a ferry across to Wellington. Yes, which is beautiful. I'd love to do that trip. Well, look, the last question. Now, you mentioned your grandchild. Um, a lot of young people have turbocharged the climate movement, I think. And come in, come in. <laughs> and I'd like to ask you, one of the things from Extinction Rebellion that I like very much is they say, um, from this moment, despair ends and tactics begin. Now, I think you have been in this long enough to know a bit about tactics. Just tell us some of your favourite tactics, because listeners often think, oh, no one's doing anything. And I know there must be thousands of people in New Zealand doing something, There's thousands in Australia, millions, and all over the world. But people don't really know about it. Just tell us what you think. What's, tell us about some of your wins and some of the tactics that you like. Well, I could talk about the current uh, campaign that we're working on at the moment. And the tactic is not, is not popular because what we've been doing, and they've been doing it in Europe as well, and other places like Canada and even Australia, parts of Australia, is peacefully, deliberately sitting on the motorways in the way of ordinary people. And it's a very scary thing to do, but it is instantly getting attention and it is instantly uh, making people think, mm -hmm. what are they doing here? 
why are they doing it? And it's about the climate because we know there are, we've been told by the top scientists of the world, there's maybe two to three years left for us to really start making a difference. This is, we're the only ones left who can do it. We cannot kick the ball down the road anymore. And small things that we each do in our individual lives are not enough. We need the government to make the right changes to do the right things. So we're, um, we're not in a popularity contest. We are in a scramble to save humanity. We want everyone to join us. <laughs> well, we, we did do, do that in Australia too. And recently in Sydney, some people stopped the Harbour Tunnel. There's five million people live in Sydney alone. And so a lot of irate drivers. But the worst part was the draconian laws. You know, the police arrest them. They actually tried to arrest them a few days before in their camp where they were planning, just their planning camp. So all they were being arrested for was plotting to do this. Those laws were brought in in April, just when your campaign launched. So we're trying to withdraw those. What's it like here for protesters and campaigners? Public don't like things, but then they get used to it. Just like suffragettes broke windows and then everyone, women, I think mostly said, thanks for the vote later That's but you know what what's it like here for the police so far at the moment we haven't had any difficulty with the police the draconian laws have not been brought in here but they have been brought in in other countries as as you say in australia also in the uk and parts of europe where they've got new right-wing governments mm. all i can say is oh i keep thinking back to gandhi's words where he said first they ignore you then they laugh at you then they fight you this is what's happening. This is the state fighting back. But then we win. We have to. Thank you. So we've been talking to Rosemary Penwarden. I hope we'll hear from her again. Thank you. I want to say I have been listening to, first of all, it was Beyond Zero Emissions. Now it's 3CR. I, I've, I've been subscribing to you for years. Hello. I'm Rory McLeod. I live in Scotland and I love radio. I can do the washing up, I could be in the garden, I could be in the car driving. Well, I'm listening to 3CR, Radical Radio, subscription radio, community radio, on 8.55am. We do stream at 3cr.org.au. So you can become a member and donate money. Okay, listeners, um, I'm still in Dunedin, and I've met Jack Brazil. He's a local community organiser, and I must say to you that all the people I've interviewed so far today all know each other, so it's lovely to be in a small town where that's possible. Uh, Jack, tell us about the scope of what you do in climate action. Perfect, yeah. Kia ora. Um, my name's Jack Brazil. I'm from Otipoti Aotearoa, Dunedin, New Zealand. Um, what I've been mostly involved in is sort of grassroots community organising for climate justice, um, anti-racism, anti-fascism and building community. And so a lot of how we uh, organise and view um, how we can tackle these, these global issues is just starting locally. And so that begins with building community, um, building strong relationships and around shared values um, of um, anti-racism, of um, climate justice, and looking after one another. So how I sort of see it is it all starts with, you know, sharing food and building relationships. So that's sort of the centre of our organising model. We'd, we'd never have a meeting or an event without food. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and because climate change is such a long problem, it's going to be for all of your life. It's going to be for all of my life. When I die, I know it's still going to be, I hope it's not going to be accelerating as it is now, but it's still going to be going. It's a big problem. So we need to build the trust and the relationships for the long haul. So um, what are the focus, what is the focus like, you don't have the big anti-coal and anti-gas thing that we have in Australia. That's a huge part of our day, thinking about that and, and trying to resist it and stop it. What's the main focus here? It's, uh, we do have some um, organising against um, coal and other fossil fuels, but I'd say largely it is, it's um, against agriculture and it's against... Uh, um, it's for um, indigenous rights, so tangata whenua, the people of the land who are uh, Māori. Um, and so that's indigenous rights across um, Aotearoa because we are on Māori land. This is a country in the, the South Pacific and it's one of many settler colonies of the empire. And so I guess the focus of it really is, um, you know, what I take a bit of solace in, but also it's a bit scary is, um, understanding the gravity of the climate crisis is knowing that this has actually been a, a long-term project for over the last 500, 1,000 years. Um, it's it's an imported belief system, an ideology of the empire um, grounded in Europe about the mindset that um, there are superior peoples that can go to other countries to tell people how to do it, to um, harm the land and harm the people. It's the same thing. So I sort of view it as a uh, this is a you know a decolonizing um, which is meant to be um, understood through the um, supporting of affirming the indigenous peoples to live on their lands to live in the way that they've lived for for centuries for millennia and find harmony between um, the, all the various cultures in this country because we're not a bicultural nation we're a multicultural nation which I think tends to get lost in the conversation sometimes. So it's really essentially just about um, building community and um, understanding, I guess, we talk about system change a lot, but at the end of the day, we're all still the same people, all living in the same place. And so I think to conceptualise what that looks like is it's about changing the way we relate to one another, treat each other, so not having relationships and work relationships of, of domination and extraction, but ones of mutuality, mutual aid, cooperation and you know realizing that's actually how humans have um, evolved is by working together. Yeah well I think New Zealand is a bit unique in settler colonial places because you have the Waitangi Treaty and I know Maori people are still disadvantaged but they're not as disadvantaged as indigenous people in Australia where we have had you know, a diff very different history and have still not got a treaty. We're still arguing to get the treaty. Um, I also interviewed someone here, a Maori professor called Jacinta Ruru, and she told me about the really internationally groundbreaking legislation that that is using Maori understanding of the land by making um, mountains and rivers... Um, people having standing in the court and so therefore they can be ancestors they can be cared for and thought of like that and I went to Mount Cook Iraqi the other day and I because I'd heard her speak I got it I got it and I didn't I don't have a big education here but I sort of could see that yes that is and the myth about it I could get it and I feel that that 
is something that you are lucky here to have Maori people who still have a very, they know who they are, they know where they're going, as Aboriginal people do in Australia, but they are teaching you. What are the lessons about the land? You say, well, we flog the land for profit to export all this milk and before that meat and oh, I don't know really the economy of New Zealand it seems a lot on flogging the land doesn't it but same in Australia but what have you learned about a different attitude whereby you can still all live you're not going to die of hunger you're not going to fall into economic depression completely but there's a way of diversifying what, what have you learned so yeah, those are some a lot of really good points. Um, I was lucky enough to um, study law under Jacinta Ruru, and um, very I admire her work a lot. So um, I I would first address that point. Um, I come across it a lot in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and I always sort of reply, you know, we're the best of the worst, and so that's still not a good qualifier. And I think that has a lot to do with you know being a settler colony like so-called Australia, Canada, United States, across Turtle Island, South Africa and all across the Pacific, um, you know, we were one of the ones later in the game. And so I think we've, we tend to forget that. Um, and what we're seeing now with the rise of the global far right and a lot of racist ideologies, a lot of homophobic ideologies, anti-trans, um, that is no different to um, what's happening, the, to the gravity of what's happening we see in the States. And um, so we're just not quite as far along. And so I think, um, we're quite lucky and blessed, you know, I feel very privileged and blessed to live on the land I'm on. Um, that's um, the Kaitahu, Katemamo and the Waitaha people are the, the indigenous people, the mana whenua, the people who hold the, the connection through their ancestry, through their protection of the land um, to live here. And I think um, we tend to forget as um, someone who has, my ancestors mostly come from Ireland, Scotland, England, um, and we forget that the you know the settler colonizers were the original colonized people and so when you talk about sort of understanding the connection to the mountains and the rivers um, as what gives life to to the land um, that is the same for where our ancestors had come from um, but that has been you know a thousand years two thousand years long process of um, viewing the land is something you take from, you know, and it's, there's a lot of an analogies between, um, you know, patriarchy and how, as society, women are treated by men and how, um, you know, we view the land as, you know, Mother Earth and how we treat that. And so I think um, by being careful not to appropriate Indigenous um, ideas and beliefs, but to, to support Indigenous peoples to um, have so sovereignty and autonomy is a um, very clear way in which we can um, reconnect ourselves and then through our own ancestry, our own um, stories and where we've come from to reconnect that sort of severed connection we have with spirituality, um, with the land and understanding that you know what we do to the land is what we do to people. and all around the world where we have extractive fossil fuel sites, there's always harm to women, there's always harm to children, and particularly indigenous women, and that's that's very evident across um, um, North America with the missing um, and murdered um, indigenous women. Not to mention yeah. all the species. Yes. Let's get back to policy and what 
governments can do, and therefore people like us pressure governments, citizens, generally civil society pressures governments, want them to do better, do faster, but they've also got people whispering in their ear and filling their pockets <laughs> with, you know, don't do it, put on the brakes. The government and the states of settler colonies are not able to save us, and the way their systems are designed are not conducive to this, because that's how we're in this mess. Um, you know, the system's not broken, it's working exactly how it was intended to. It was made and devised by people who viewed, you know, through the doctrine of discovery um, in, in Europe. Um, it was a belief that um, you could go anywhere in the world and if the land was unclaimed, so to speak, then you could take it and use it. And the process of doing that had to then dehumanise the indigenous peoples of those lands as as not human, which then justified the the genocide, the 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 destruction of their peoples and culture and land and way of living with the land. And so that government system is still working today. It's still um, um, it's still destroying land across so-called Australia. It's still destroying land across Aotearoa, New Zealand. And so I think we have to be very very clear that the people in the politicians, they they are only there um, because they've been approved by the party structure and the type of people we need to lead us are not able to get through that system. So I think there's something to be said for um, you know, using the tools you have, which I think parliamentary change has its place, but we need to really view that as the problem and then start thinking of solutions and the solutions that I, I see are um, starting where we are in our own communities, um, learning the local history, um, learning who the indigenous people are on the land, learning the, the names of the places you're on, and then supporting those people to get their sovereignty back. What would you like to see? Like if we had this, I know New Zealand might eventually take Pacific Island refugees from climate, and Australia should too. Yeah, so it might sound very radical, but it's, it's basically land back. So that's a, um, a political movement to um, return sovereignty and stewardship. So it's, it's not the same as the Western colonial mindset of owning land because um, you can't own land. You know, we're only here on this, this planet as individuals for a very short amount of time. And it's about understanding that you're inheriting the land from people who have cared for it and that's how you live and that provides you life and you're also caring for that land for your future ancestors. Very good. Well, thank you. I think you're in very good company. One more thing. Um, just to, yeah, to finish off, I think a very useful quote that I heard from, um, um, it's a, from a group of Aboriginal mothers in the 70s and I think it really explains what we need to do. Um, they go, if you've come here to help me, no thank you. But if you've come because your liberation is bound with mine, then let's work together. So that was Jack Brazil from Otipoti. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking to us. Kia ora. And all the songs within your soul Are all the stories ever told Each time you sing creates them anew You carry them and they carry you so stand up proud, you singers all. You have the right to stand as tall as those who grow. And
I have uh, Jana Althea here with me in Dunedin and she started with the School Strike for Climate movement but now she's more involved with Extinction Rebellion and the movement we heard about to bring back passenger rail. So welcome, Jana. Tell me a little bit about what you learned from being in the School Strike generation and the public response in Dunedin. Would you say you, you enlightened people and got people in more people involved than normally would have known about climate change? Well, firstly, thank you for um, having me on. I don't know, I think enlightened is, a, is quite a lofty word. I wouldn't want to use it to describe what I've done, but what I think we've done is really restored that faith in young people and this idea that young people can be motivational and inspirational and really effective. So overall we've had a groundswell of, we had a groundswell of um, support from the public and from politicians kind of across the board. Um, and I think that's really impressive given that everybody coordinating all of the actions were all, you know, between the ages of 11 and what 17 18 mm. i think that's really impressive the mass mobilization we were able to achieve i've noticed that extinction rebellion in in australia has sort of in, in sydney at least seems to have dwindled a bit or it's broken off into other types of groups you know blockade australia is one and a lot of them you know take the momentum of extinction rebellion and then turn it into something else but certainly it's very hard to be in a movement of people where Everyone who comes lends their energy, but not everyone knows how to keep it going and keep it positive and keep the focus on the, on the goal, which is to lower emissions and to you know survive. Really, it's a very small window of opportunity we've got. Um, what what are your feelings about movements and getting people power going? Because it's I, I have found it hard myself. What about you? I think it is. I think it is hard. I think it's hard as well when facing the negative impact that it often has on mental health to be working in such a negative and, and I dare say depressing field. Um, however, I think that there, with that despair comes a real sense of community when you're working with the right people and a real, real strong bonds end up being formed as you work through that really intense, those really intense negative emotions which come from these uh, the, the field and the work and the information that we're working with. Well, Extinction Rebellion is cutting through. They came out sort of before COVID and really cut through the glass ceiling for a lot of people. What are they doing here? Here we've done a couple things, um, whether it's to do with mineral forms or where I've been more involved is to do with a coal train that comes through the city pretty much daily. And it carts tons and tons of coal, um, all with the purpose of dehydrating milk from the dairy industry, which in itself is a bit problematic, but I probably ought not get into that here. And then to export that milk, that dehydrated milk. Except one of the one of the big issues I have with this train is not only that it's carrying coal, but that because Kiwi Rail is a state-owned subsidy, it's actually the government who's who's agreed to these contracts to cart this coal, even though the government's declared a climate emergency, which just to me feels like the declaration of a climate emergency is a bit tokenistic. The other big thing is um, the cruise ships, and I tried to get on a train myself on Sunday, and I found that the whole train had been chartered by passengers from the cruise ship. 
Now, I flew here. Listeners, you'll remember I was never going to fly again, but I was tempted by my family to come over here. So I have taken a flight to New Zealand, but I wouldn't go on a cruise ship. And they're pumping out a lot of diesel-powered emissions, I think. What, what is your feeling about that, about the transport we've got from planes coming to New Zealand for tourism and cruise ships coming here for more tourism? How do you feel about that? I think it's really despicable, um, to put it quite bluntly and simply. I think the pros of the, you know, everybody says, oh, cruise ships bring such economic wealth and they're good for our um, local businesses, but that doesn't outweigh the vast amounts of emissions that they put into the atmosphere all the time. So I'm, I'm quite angry about it. Also, from my history, I grew up on a sailboat. And then seeing these vast cruise ships come in with all of these people and all of this, there's something about it that feels like the epitome of humans taking advantage of the natural world and imposing our big, um, our big like apartment building size size blocks that are not very, they're not streamlined, they're not effective, they're not efficient, pretty much in any way. It's just about making money off people exploiting the natural world, yeah. in my how, opinion. How fascinating. I have to ask you, tell me a bit more about the sailboat. You must have therefore thought a lot, people should, just because of climate change, we don't have to stop travelling, but there's other ways of travelling. Tell us about that. Oh, there are definitely other ways of travelling. And um, we, we travelled in a bit of a unique way where when there wasn't wind, we just kind of sat and drifted. We never had a timeline for things. It's definitely probably the main factor. Um, in, in me getting involved in environmental activism. Um, I was on the boat for the first 14 or 15 years of my life, um, all around. And with that came kind of a knowledge and a first-hand experience of the various atrocities and the effects that climate change is having elsewhere in the world. But then also a real feeling of powerlessness because I wasn't a part of a community to make those changes and to empower people and to yeah, change the institution. So when I moved to Dunedin at the start of 2019, I kind of made it my mission to, um, to, I was like, I'm going to get involved, I'm going to change things, I'm going to make things better. And, well, it's a very slow process and I'm under no, I'm under no illusion that I'm single-handedly going to do anything. But um, the team's really good and despite all of the different groups, Janine's small enough that everybody kind of knows everybody else and for the most part everybody works with everybody else because we're going against such a goliath of a system. You must know tons about the ocean then. You mentioned atrocities. How, how did your family happen to be having this life? Well, my parents were both academics in North America, um, and then Bush was re-elected, and my older sister had just been born, and they thought, I don't, we don't want to raise our kids here. And they bought a boat and left, and that was, that was about it, and I was born along the way. Um, and we kind of just never stopped moving, I guess, and the ocean holds a really significant place in my heart and really it's probably for the ocean for the coral reefs that are ble being bleached and and for the animals dying because of ocean acidification and the temperature is rising it's probably because of all that especially that's all on my mind when I'm doing anything to do with climate change and that's probably the main reason for the little small crustaceans and, and fish. Wow. Well, thank you that's been a real pleasure meeting you We've been talking to Yana Althea, who started off in a boat, sailing. No wonder she doesn't like the cruise ships. Thank you very much, Yana. 3CR is so important to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not 
you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Alpha Feldmeyer is with me from 350 Aotearoa and she is the Executive Director. Welcome Alva. Tell us first about yourself and how 350 fits in to this progressive picture. Kia ora, hello, uh, lovely to be with your listeners in Australia and greetings from Ōtipoti Dunedin. Um, yeah, a little bit about myself and perhaps what brought me into this role with 350 Aotearoa and where I'm at now. Um, I'm originally from Germany, a town called Münster, quite similar to Dunedin in many ways. It's a university town as well, a, a little bit bigger, but uh, I find it's got quite similar vibes <laughs> um, and got involved in activism through my family, really. I come from quite an activist family and remember going to marches, um, organizing fundraisers uh, when there were um, extreme weather events in Haiti with my mother. Um, and so on, and then getting involved in my first activist groups in my early high school years as well. And then when I was 15, I was uprooted from my my land, my whenua, <laughs> um, and was brought to the other side of the world, to Aotearoa, New Zealand, and have continued my activism journey here, mostly through human rights. I've been a big part of Amnesty International, Aotearoa, New Zealand, and was leading groups. Um, and my understanding of human rights led me to climate justice campaigning, um, seeing that one of the biggest human rights issues we are facing as a world is the climate crisis um, and how that's impacting on human rights. And probably in 2017 or 2018, I joined the local 350 Ōtipoti group um, and, yeah, from there on continued as a volunteer and later stepped into staff roles and I'm now the executive director of 350 Aotearoa. And one of our campaigns is the Homegrown Energy Campaign advocating in the electricity sector and there hadn't really been an activist group like ours campaigning on that, so we really found a niche um, on that Another campaign we've been doing as part of a coalition has been the Fossil Free State Sector Coalition, so um, lobbying the government to allocate the budget that is required to replace fossil fuel boilers from schools, hospitals and prisons. And then 350 has... I know in Australia as well, but also globally been really known in the divestment space and has really shaped and been a huge part of the millions of institutions globally uh, that have divested from fossil fuel companies and that have cut the financial ties that have been propping up this industry. So here in Dunedin as well, our city council and our university have divested um, from fossil fuels. We've got small churches here in Dunedin, including the one we're sitting in today that have divested um, and that's really been attributed to the power of of local organizing and of local groups campaigning on these institutions. Wow so that's a lot and I like the name 350.org because it always reminds me what the benchmark is and we're now globally up to 400 parts per million. We've just been through COP27 and a lot of people are sort of being overwhelmed by information, media is focusing on it now, which they weren't 
really before as in the way I would have liked. But people despair too quickly, in my opinion, and people go, oh, it's too late, it's too much, and they're rather nihilistic because they want to go on with the profitable businesses and the, the whole system that is charged with carbon still. And I want to know, emissions here are, are per capita quite high, even though the emissions of New Zealand as a country are not, not that big. But what about the personal level? What's the reason for New Zealanders having a high per capita carbon footprint? I think one of um, the biggest reasons that our, our per capita emissions are so high is from our agricultural industry. By that, I don't mean as in New Zealanders who necessarily consume agricultural products and therefore our emissions are high, but no, we have a huge agricultural industry. So over half of our greenhouse gas emissions are agricultural emissions and over 90% of our agriculture industry is an export industry as well. We've got polluted rivers, we've got in a lot of um, locations, rural communities in particular here around Dunedin and in the South Island. We've got polluted drinking water with high nitrate levels that's coming at a cost to, to the people living in those communities. There are so many impacts that agriculture has directly on our land as well as on our emissions and I think that is a big part of it. And then yeah, also our transport sector. We are Geographically speaking, a relatively large island with a very small population, um, which is not the best set up to have sustainable forms of transport. So we are all extremely car reliant. And even in bigger cities um, like Tamaki Makoro, Auckland, people are really reliant on, on their cars. So our transport emissions are relatively high as well gives us a bit of a picture. You're into solutions, I know, and that's where the progressive people always are. They're not going to sit on their laurels, but you have a thing called homegrown energy. Now, I've seen hydro energy traveling around. I've seen a lot of rivers with dams all down them. That goes back quite historically, that hydro energy. But you've got a project called homegrown energy. Is that about solar panels on the roof or what is it? In short, it's about ensuring that we can reach our goal of 100% renewable electricity. A lot of the research we have done in this field is, I guess, understanding the electricity market here in New Zealand and understanding how easy or not easy it is for communities to generate their own electricity and, and gain some energy sovereignty again. And have found that there are some huge obstacles. There's our electricity market is so broken that currently the big energy companies that are that have a monopoly on electricity generation and retail in New Zealand have an incredibly perverse incentive to keep fossil fuels in the system at all times because that keeps up their profits. This does not sit well um, with households and the general public because we've seen power prices rise by 79% in the past 30 years. So we've got the cost of living crisis. People are struggling. People want to be part of climate change solutions, but there are so many obstacles um, to actually be able to, you know, have rooftop solar. To, there, there's no incentives currently for people to put solar panels on their roofs. Um, and at the same time, these companies are benefiting of burning record amounts of coal and distributing money to their shareholders. This is odd. I didn't know this. The, you have a, a prime minister who's just said this is the generation-defining 
um, subject, climate action. And she's banned offshore drilling, um, she and her government, uh, for oil and gas. And I think that was a big struggle here. So what what's stopping? Why is it so stagnant? I mean, wh- and also not, you've explained what's stopping it, but what's your, what's the popular re- response to this? What's the campaign? And how much do you have for government's ear in this? Because the government could turn this around and and not subsidise the old system and, and put a lot of money. We, in Australia, we subsidise the fossil fuel industry to the tune of about $11 billion a year. So I know governments could withdraw that. We saw COVID, you know, excess, you know, huge amounts of money were liberated to to help us in the health sector. So what's what's your plan of attack, you know, from the campaigning angle? I guess our overall goal is ensuring to, that we advocate for solutions that will enable us to reach 100% renewable electricity. And then we've broken it down. So our local groups have come up and you know, done research and come up with demands to campaign on their local councils to support the uptake of renewables. Um, just as an example, I can talk to the to the demands that 350 Autiporti Dunedin has come up with. Um, so our local group has researched what are some of the, you know, things we could ensure here that our city does their part. One of the demands they have got is to convert a landfill, um, the Green Island landfill here in Dunedin, that is expected to close in the coming years into a solar farm so that the electricity generated on that land can be used for the wastewater treatment plant that is adjacent. Um, The second demand is targeting the biggest user of LPG gas in the city, which is um, the local swimming pool, Moana Pool. Um, And we have seen other cities close by convert uh, their water heating system to renewable sources. So um, calling on the city council to ensure that Moana Pool uses something like biomass or electricity um, to heat their pool. And the third demand is looking at supporting um, households to insulate their homes. There currently is a a Cozy Homes Trust here in Dunedin that gives um, seed funding to households wanting to insulate and transition away from gas. And we also know that there are still a lot of households in Dunedin that burn coal for heating because it gets incredibly cold here during the winter and it is a cheaper alternative. Um, So supporting those households to have heat pumps installed. So we're asking... um, the local city council to uh, put more investments and to increase this fund so we can have all households convert to renewable energy sooner. Now, the bigger picture approach um, is, as you say, also targeting our government because our government does have a huge role in setting the levers uh, to ensure that these companies cannot profit from burning fossil fuels and they are um, they have their hands tied to actually invest in renewable generation as well. So our report had come up with five policy solutions. Um, and to be honest, so far, we have got a response from the government. Um, our Minister for Energy called us on the day of the report and requested a meeting. Um, and through the media pressure, our Minister for Finance, Grant Robertson, commented on the report. It's really hard to tell whether there will be an interest um, in implementing the changes we are suggesting and other people in the renewable industry, but I think we um, have seen our government take action on excessive profits from banks and on supermarkets in recent weeks, so I do think there is hope that they could follow suit and do um, 
a, a similar you know approach for our electricity generators as well just in terms of people power are you feeling that really there is a lot of muscle in it <clears throat> or is it dwindling and hard to organize people and hard to recruit people and hard to keep them going with this work in australia it's often that feeling that you're really just solving one issue you're stopping one coal mine and then another one opens up or you're getting one government to agree to something and then the next government comes in and cancels it um, but people power is something that we're clinging to as as a way of generating energy for something better so what's your feeling over your experience yeah it's a tough question i think our people power climate movement has had a really tough few years um was in the pandemic i think the pandemic has been holding back energy but i think that energy hasn't gone um it's building like water behind a dam and i really hope that in the near future there's going to be ways to release and channel all of this energy and people power again. Um, but I do think that our activism landscape has really changed over the past few years. And I think, as you say, one of the big contributors to that as well is that lack of hope, because it is really difficult year after year to to be positive about um, the change that needs to happen and to, again, re-energize yourself and people in your community to take action but I also think it is a privilege to give up on hope. Um, and I'm constantly reminded by this um, through my colleagues working in the Pacific. Um, they can't not have hope <laughs> because giving up hope for them means giving up on their islands and means giving up on, on their land, on their families, on their history, on their connection. And I am incredibly inspired by that. So I think was in me, I constantly find that hope again because for me, giving up hope and giving up this work means giving up hundreds and millions of people around the world who are trying to hold the front line. They're trying to hold on the line of, you know, change that can happen. Um, and I think there is always something that we can do and that we can achieve. And it's one project at a time. It is one small win at a time. Um, and I think we will still be able to mitigate some of the worst impacts and I think collectively we can ensure that you know our future is maybe a little bit less shit <laughs> than you know some of the forecasts are saying and I'm I for one am motivated to to ensure that every little bit that we can prevent um we will do collectively thank you so we've been talking to Alva Feldmeyer she's the executive director of 350 Aotearoa and we're talking in Otipoti, Dunedin. Thank you, Elva. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Radio Show. We broadcast from Melbourne and Sydney, but I was delighted in Dunedin to find that one of the people I interviewed knew my voice. She said, oh, I'm a subscriber. You're at 3CR, aren't you? And I listen to your podcasts. So this is a high point for me. I never meet a listener from one end of the year to the other. But here we have a listener in New Zealand, Aotearoa, who listens to us regularly. So I'm very pleased. And please, listeners, if you want to help us with this program by 
contacting us with ideas or offers to collaborate with us, please contact the station. It's Melbourne 039 419 So thanks to the guests tonight, Rosemary Penwarden, Jack Brazil, Yana Althea and Alva Feldmeyer. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.